You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 65, The Blank Slate. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, we left off last time in the spring of 1802 with the Treaty of Amiens. France and Britain were finally at peace after nearly a decade of conflict. As we discussed last time, some experienced observers of diplomacy had grave doubts about the treaty, especially the British, who were generally considered to have gotten the worse end of the bargain. In Parliament, opponents of Prime Minister Addington were already hammering the government over their supposed capitulation to the French. But for now, doubt was mostly confined to the ranks of the powerful. Average people were generally ecstatic. In London, all government buildings were illuminated to facilitate the public celebrations into the night. A few months later, Britain held a general election, in which Prime Minister Addington and his allies won a convincing victory. Only a tiny sliver of the British public enjoyed the right to vote and the electoral system was grossly unfair, so I would not call this a popular mandate for the treaty. But in their own flawed way, the elections did signal that those whose opinions mattered in Britain were generally happy with the peace. In Paris, the skies were filled with hot air balloons, draped in the flags of the various European powers. Come nightfall, they were replaced by fireworks. The socialite Laure de Brantes, wife of Napoleon's friend, General Jean-Andoche Junot, estimated that there were perhaps as many as 10,000 balls and parties of some note held in the capital during 1802. Paris had been on the upswing for years, probably since around 1795, right after the fall of Robespierre and the inauguration of the Directory. Now that peace had returned, the city was ready to reclaim its status as the cultural and social capital of Europe. In celebration of the treaty, Napoleon organized a mock battle at the Place de la Concorde, complete with authentic roaring cannon, firing blanks, of course. 
At the climax of the performance, an actor representing the spirit of chaos rode over the battlefield in a chariot, sowing death and discord, before finally being killed by French soldiers, thus restoring peace to Europe. Any British person who could afford to do so flocked to Paris, nearly a thousand in the first week alone which is an absolutely eye-popping number in an era in which travel was expensive, difficult, and time-consuming. Just as it is today, the number one point of interest was the Louvre Museum, then relatively new and freshly stocked with the riches of Italy and Egypt. Perhaps the second greatest attraction was Napoleon himself. Whenever Bonaparte was scheduled to appear in public, you could be sure that the event would attract a gaggle of curious Englishmen, eager to get a glimpse of this face they had seen so often in newspapers and political cartoons. Samuel Romilly, a prominent London lawyer, recalled, He had a mildness and a serenity in his countenance, which is very prepossessing, and none of the sternness which is found in his pictures. End quote. Even among his enemies, Bonaparte was capable of inspiring fascination. During this period, Napoleon was able to finally meet someone he only knew through reputation, Charles James Fox, the leader of the Whig Party in Parliament, and one of the most famous and powerful liberals in Europe. Fox was an implacable opponent of the conservative British establishment. He had openly supported the Americans during their War of Independence and had been so sympathetic to the French Revolution and critical of the war effort that his opponents accused him of sedition. Fox was a good person for Napoleon to know, a potential ally right at the heart of the British legislature. He tried to ingratiate himself to Fox, but the portly old liberal was put off both by Bonaparte personally and his regime in general. France under the consulate bore little resemblance to Fox's ideal of a free society. There were soldiers and policemen everywhere. Government censors kept a watchful eye over journalism and culture. They were quite permissive compared to a true totalitarian dictatorship, but they were there, and perhaps more importantly, the public was aware that there were limits on the freedom of expression. Bonaparte ruled as an absolute dictator in all but name. Fox considered him closer to a king or an emperor than a democratic leader. Of course, Napoleon's supporters probably would have responded that this was the naive dream of a coffeehouse radical, divorced from the hard realities of the revolution and the wars that followed. But however you want to look at it, Napoleonic France had little to offer English radicals like Fox. Upon his return, Fox famously summed up his view of the two countries' political systems in this way, quote, Liberty is asleep in France, but dead in England, end quote. As a gesture of goodwill, Napoleon invited the first batch of British tourists to the Tuileries Gardens to view a fireworks show in celebration of the peace. Unfortunately, the viewing platform collapsed, and one of the visitors broke his neck. Despite the attentions of Napoleon's personal doctor, he died after lingering for nearly a month. Even if you're not superstitious, that seems like a very bad omen. Some of this outpouring of joy was orchestrated by Napoleon's propaganda machine, 
which was always careful to remind people who they had to thank for their deliverance from war. But some of it does appear to have been genuine, and it wasn't just the people of France celebrating. All over the Western world, even as far away as the Americas, the response was ecstatic, and almost everyone who hailed the peace gave credit to Bonaparte. A young Venezuelan expatriate living in Paris wrote that Napoleon was, quote, the symbol of liberty and glory, the object of my political admiration, end quote. That was Simon Bolivar, the future liberator of South America. In Vienna, Austria, not exactly a hotbed of pro-French sentiment, Ludwig von Beethoven began writing a symphony dedicated to Bonaparte. His friend and personal secretary, Ferdinand Ries, would recall, quote, Beethoven had the highest esteem for Napoleon, and compared him to the greatest consuls of ancient Rome. End quote. There were obvious reasons to celebrate the end of the war. It meant at least a degree of stability in international affairs, the end of onerous wartime taxation, the return of long-departed soldiers and sailors, and, of course, no more casualties. But in the case of well-read, intellectually inclined men like Bolivar and Beethoven, Napoleon's propaganda machine had also tapped into something much deeper. If you think back to our episodes on the early stages of the French Revolution, you might remember that the literate middle classes of Europe had generally greeted it with interest and hope, even enthusiasm in many cases. However, as events in France spiraled towards chaos and the Republican government grew more radical and more violent, many of these well-wishers soured on the revolution. In the years that followed, many came to view the revolution with bitter disappointment, a dream of progress which had turned into a nightmare of blood. You can agree or disagree with that sentiment, but there's no denying that it was present among the literate classes of the West. These middle-class intellectual types had already become enamored with Bonaparte when he was a general, through descriptions of his exploits in Italy and Egypt helpfully filtered through his carefully written dispatches and public relations machine, as we've discussed in past episodes. With the Treaty of Amiens, this fascination often bloomed into something approaching hero worship. As they saw it, not only had Bonaparte delivered peace, he had single-handedly redeemed the promise of the revolution, which they had once viewed with such hope. As we've seen, the story of how the European powers arrived at peace in 1801 and 2 is quite complicated, but Napoleon's PR machine was amazingly successful in ensuring he received the lion's share of the credit. Even in countries hostile to France, huge swaths of the public bought this image of Bonaparte the peacemaker. However, the peace between Britain and France would only last about a year, tragically short, given the scale of suffering the war had brought to both countries. But this period we're now entering was arguably the peak of Bonaparte's entire career. Ever since Napoleon's day, writers and thinkers have cast him as the perfect embodiment of the age, a man who rose from obscurity based on merit and patriotic service, a well-read rationalist who tried to put the principles of the Enlightenment into practice at least within certain limits. I would argue that at no point in his career was Napoleon more in tune with that early 19th century zeitgeist. 
France was about to enter a short but spectacular golden age. Thirty or forty episodes from now, you may find yourself wondering why so many average French men and women continued to follow Napoleon through all the bloodshed and strife that would follow this interlude of peace. I think one factor we can't overlook is the fact that the memory of this golden age was still quite fresh. A lot of people thought Napoleon was capable of delivering peace. After all, he had done it before. Twice, actually, if you count the Treaty of Campo Formio. And once peace was restored, more good years might be just around the corner. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that was a forlorn hope. But think of it from their perspective. Napoleon had succeeded where every other revolutionary government had failed. You can see the logic in assuming he was still the likeliest candidate to do it again. There was no solid proof anyone else was up to the task. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I think we can probably write off some of Napoleon's newfound prestige as a reflection of the general enthusiasm for peace. However, you can make a good argument that France really was embarking on a new era. It had been nearly 13 years since the storming of the Bastille. The Republic itself was coming up on its 10th anniversary. You could hardly call the revolution a new phenomenon. And yet, the consequences of this momentous event were still unsettled. That's understandable on a certain level. After such a huge change, it takes time for a new status quo to coalesce. And in the grand scheme of things, ten years is not a very long time. Not much more than the blink of an eye when you zoom out and look at the broad sweep of history. The revolution had changed almost every aspect of French society. Entire institutions were uprooted entirely. It would take a lot longer than ten years for things to calm down and settle into a new status quo. That long, difficult process was further complicated and prolonged by war and political instability. After nearly ten years of Republican rule, much of French society still remained in flux. The old order was gone for good. That was obvious to all but the most radical, intractable reactionaries but the new order that would replace it was still in its infancy, at this stage mostly a patchwork of temporary workarounds and emergency wartime measures. This helps explain why Napoleon's message of peace and stability resonated so deeply in France, and why there was so much hope invested in his government during this period. It also helps explain what was coming next. For the first time in nearly a decade, the French government had the breathing space to look beyond its immediate survival and focus on the future. 
finally begin the difficult work of forging a cohesive, durable new system to replace the old regime. And remember, by this point, Napoleon's predominance over the consulate was unquestioned. He had no serious rivals, inside or outside the government. This was a rare confluence of circumstances. France was nearly a blank slate, and the government was in the hands of a single man, who had the vision and the energy to mold its future. I don't want to veer into great man theory history here, but there's no denying the fact that Napoleon was in an almost unique position to influence the destiny of his country. He was quite aware of the magnitude of this opportunity, and would throw himself into it with his typical dynamism. Think back to episode 41, when we saw Napoleon seize the island of Malta from the Knights of St. John, and totally remake the island's government, legal code, administration, and education system, and found a whole slew of new institutions, all in the course of just seven days. Now he had the opportunity to do the same thing in France, on a much bigger scale, with infinitely more time and resources. Napoleon had fantasized about becoming a great ruler since childhood. In a sense, he'd been preparing for this task his whole life. Napoleon famously said, quote, I am the revolution, end quote. Even today, people debate exactly what he meant by that, and whether or not it was true. This much is clear. Napoleon's personal fortunes and the fate of the revolution were now tied together, probably irreversibly. So, to sum up, Bonaparte had an unprecedented opportunity to shape France's future. But, to borrow a phrase, he did not have the freedom to make history however he pleased. The Republic faced a lot of glaring problems that needed to be addressed. And of course, Napoleon was limited by his government's capabilities and the need to keep the French public on his side. For the remainder of this episode, we'll take a look at some of the items at the top of Bonaparte's peacetime agenda. The nation's financial situation was still quite poor. As you might remember, this whole revolution business began with a financial crisis. Successive governments had done their best to clean up the mess left behind by the old regime, and they had made some progress, but there was a long way to go. On the eve of Napoleon's ascension to power, France's credit remained in ruins. The government was effectively unable to engage in deficit spending, and forced to make do with ineffective temporary stopgaps. For instance, it was often forced to pay contractors and employees with IOUs. As you might imagine, this was incredibly unpopular, and a major contributor to the Directory's poor reputation among both the 18th century public and modern historians. One corollary to these financial issues was the total devastation of France's maritime commercial sector. This was in large measure due to the British blockade, but there was another contributing factor that Napoleon would have to deal with. The revolution had unleashed total chaos in France's colonial empire in the Caribbean, in particular on its most important and lucrative outpost, Saint-Domingue, today known as Haiti. This had once been among the most profitable colonies anywhere in the world, but during the early 1790s, Saint-Domingue had descended into a bloody, anarchic nightmare. 
The violence was on a smaller scale than the struggles which had gripped France during the same time period, because Haiti is a smaller country. But the war here had been even more bitter and destructive. Finally, something resembling order had been restored, thanks to the efforts of the brilliant ex-slave general Toussaint Louverture. But after the devastation of the previous decade, the island was still a long way from true stability, and probably more importantly from the French perspective, it was nowhere near profitable. Something would have to be done if Saint-Domingue was to return to its former status as the so-called Pearl of the Antilles. Whether or not the Haitian people actually wanted that is another matter, but depressingly few people in France cared what they had to say about their own country's destiny. French society had recovered a lot better than the economy. As we've seen, social and cultural life in Paris had not only rebounded, they were richer and livelier than ever. But the wounds of the revolution, civil conflict, and war were still fresh, and underneath all the glamour, they were still taking a toll. As we've discussed in past episodes, many of those who had opposed the revolution were still not reconciled to the new regime still holding out hope for some kind of restoration of the monarchy and the old order, perhaps in modified form. There were still thousands of aristocratic émigrés scattered around the great cities of Europe, hoping to return to France one day to reclaim their birthrights and extract revenge from the revolutionaries. And, from what we can tell, they still enjoyed some degree of influence within France. Napoleon hoped to bring at least some of these people into the fold. To do that, he would have to address the one factor which, above all others, drove this continued reactionary opposition to the government, the continuing rift between the revolution and the Catholic Church. This conflict had cooled down quite a bit after the Thermidorian reaction, which drove the virulently anti-Catholic Jacobins from power but there was still no official détente between Paris and the Vatican. Almost immediately after seizing power, Napoleon began signaling his willingness to ease tensions and reach some accommodation with the Church. He declared an amnesty for thousands of priests held in Republican jails and loosened the restrictions on Catholic worship. The reactionaries repaid Bonaparte by nearly blowing him up with their so-called infernal machine. I feel like we can hardly blame the monarchists for not trusting anybody who wore the blue jacket of the Republican army or the tricolor cockade of the revolution. A lot of Catholic blood had been spilled during the civil wars of the 1790s. Many Catholics even accused the revolutionaries of murdering Pope Pius VI in cold blood. He had died in French custody in 1799, which we'll get to in a later episode. How do you reconcile with people who believe you've murdered their spiritual leader in cold blood? This was not only a question of faith and conviction. There were a lot of pressing material concerns on the line as well. The church was much more than an idea. It was a massively powerful institution which had a complicated relationship with the states in which it operated. Under the old regime, the church had been the largest landowner in France. After the revolution, the cash-strapped Republican government had seized these lands, 
and many were auctioned off to fund the war effort. Now, all these former church lands were held by thousands of individual French men and women, everyone from peasants who had scrimped and saved to improve their lot, to wealthy bourgeois businessmen looking to invest. Many Catholics were unwilling to accept any settlement with the revolutionary government unless these lands were returned to the church, or at least some kind of equivalent compensation was offered. But all these new landowners were obviously united in opposition to any plan that forced them to give up their property, and there was no way the government could afford to pay the Vatican the value of all that land. If the Republic and the Church were to come to an agreement, someone would have to be disappointed on this land issue, lose a fortune they believed they were entitled to. There was no way around it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Before the revolution, the church had touched almost every corner of French society. It was a much bigger presence in most people's lives than the government, or the army, or any other institution you care to name. That influence had ended very suddenly in the space of only a few years, and in many areas, it still wasn't totally clear what would fill the void. To take one big example, before the revolution, education was controlled almost entirely by the Catholic Church. Even the small number of state educational institutions were mostly administered by one or another of the various Catholic orders which specialized in teaching. Napoleon was a great believer in the power of education, but how would he rebuild and strengthen the French school system? Was he willing to return this huge sphere of society to Catholic control? Or would he attempt to forge some new path? This tension with the church also gets to a more existential question Napoleon would have to address. Exactly what kind of country was France? The royalists had a pretty simple answer to this question. France was a Catholic country, its people served the king, and lived according to the ancient traditions and customs handed down from the Middle Ages. The Jacobins, the most radical and idealistic of the various revolutionary governments, had a pretty clear answer as well. France was the capital of the Enlightenment, leading the whole world forward into a liberal, rational future, by systematically destroying every trace of the old regime. Napoleon had won people over in part by promising to transcend both of these messages, and personally embody the values and desires of the entire country left, right, and center, 
Catholic, secular, and everything in between. The Directory had made similar claims about rising above the extremes on left and right, but they had failed to articulate a positive agenda of their own. In the end, people came to believe they stood for nothing but themselves, and the government fell. Clearly, this type of vague talk of unity can only get you so far. Napoleon was now the only man left standing on the political stage. He could no longer define himself purely in opposition to others, because there was no one else. He would need to present the country with a vision of his own, one which would hopefully have broader appeal than what the Royalists and the Jacobins were selling. What kind of values can unite a country less than five years removed from a brutal civil war? It's not an easy question, but something Napoleon would have to address if he hoped to stay in power. Even the most basic questions seemed up in the air. Who would count as a Frenchman in Napoleonic France? In the old days, the only real criteria was loyalty to the monarchy. The king demanded most of his subjects embrace Catholicism, but there was some room for toleration. Once the king was gone, all the subsequent republican governments claimed to rule in the name of the people. So the question of who exactly constituted the people suddenly became much more important. Did you have to speak French? Obviously it's hard to be a good citizen if you can't follow the political debates or understand the government's pronouncements. But only a minority of the population was fluent in standard French. Most spoke regional dialects or even unrelated languages like German, Breton, or Basque. What about religion? Even after years of strict official secularism, Catholicism still had a powerful hold over many people. Well over 90% had been baptized Catholic. Of course, whether or not they currently practiced or agreed with the Vatican was another matter entirely. Many former Catholics were more than content to see the power of the Church diminished but there were also significant minorities of both Protestants and Jews within the Republic. And with the recent conquests on the frontiers, these communities had grown even larger. Under the old regime, Protestants were, at best, second-class citizens. Outside of a few remote Protestant-majority regions, they were subject to all kinds of official harassment and prejudice. In the relatively recent past, they had been targets of violent state persecution. But French Protestants had it relatively good compared to French Jews. A Protestant was at least usually considered a Frenchman, even if many of his countrymen considered him a bad Frenchman in dereliction of duty to his Catholic king. Jews, on the other hand, were considered entirely outside of society. The lives of French Jews were marked by strict regulation and pervasive official prejudice. But this had all ended with the Revolution. The liberal, universalistic Republicans could not abide petty religious bigotry. They considered religion a matter of personal conscience, not a mandatory act of loyalty to one's community. Jews and Protestants became citizens, no different from any other citizen. However, Although the legal boundaries between religious communities were gone, no one had actually taken the steps to ensure these newly minted Frenchmen were well integrated into wider society, 
French Jews, in particular, were still quite segregated from the rest of the country. And while official discrimination was over, many of their fellow citizens still clung to old prejudices. If Napoleon truly believed in his Enlightenment secular principles, something would have to be done. The last major question Bonaparte would have to address was both a matter of state and a personal issue. What exactly was the nature of his rule over France? In practice, he was obviously a dictator. Only the most naive or ill-informed still doubted that. But he did usually at least pretend to govern according to the Constitution, as a powerful but limited president over a democratic republic. But, as we've discussed in the past, this pretense of constitutional rule created instability. In many respects, Napoleon was ruling like a monarch, but unlike a monarchy, there was no clear line of succession. If the one essential man in the French government suddenly died or was incapacitated, the results could be catastrophic. Even if Napoleon avoided capture or assassination, what would happen in nine years when his term as first consul ended? He had already been in office a year, and no clear successor had emerged. He would have to start grooming someone very soon if they were to have any hope of stepping into his shoes. These anxieties about who or what would come after Bonaparte peaked in the aftermath of the Infernal Machine plot, but they hadn't gone away. People within Napoleon's inner circle were already viciously jockeying for the position of successor. And, as we'll see in a future episode, this struggle had already become both a personal problem and a political one for Napoleon. By the spring of 1802, Bonaparte already had a plan in motion to assuage people's fears about these questions of succession. Napoleon was about to launch one of the most ambitious and energetic campaigns of reform in history. Next time, we will begin a long series of episodes detailing how Napoleon planned to answer all these questions raised in this episode, and in the process, laid the foundation for modern France. Until next time, thanks for listening.